Well, Brother uh, Terry, thank you for that robust reading of that translation. Uh, very, it reminds me of um, the importance of vocabulary. And in our day and time, uh, more than ever, we need to understand what words mean. We need to understand what they mean. And oftentimes in conversations, we need to define what they mean so that people can't assume they think that they know what we're talking about. And so vocabulary is important. And man, when, when Brother Terry, when you read verse 3, that, that false teachers will stand to make merchandise of us. I, I'm not even probably going to get to that verse today, but I'm thankful that you said that. Because that is so very true and so very important um, for us to consider If you're familiar with the word pseudo in our English language, um, there's a there's it's a prefix that's a that's connected to a lot of words that you might be familiar with. Like, for instance, a pseudonym is a name, a false name, a fake name that you may go by, not a nickname, but particularly one that is uh, meant to. keep your identity a secret. Maybe you're an author and you write a story and you want, you want some anonymity to that, then you're going to, um, you're going to keep that a secret. Therefore, you would have a pseudonym or a fake name. Um, also, you might be, uh, uh, consider yourself a scientist, but you don't really practice the scientific method. You just go around telling people that you are a well-known scientist, well, people would call you, uh, they would say that you are a pseudoscientist. You are someone who claims to practice science, but in essence, know nothing about it. Um, the, the prefix pseudo is actually an important word in the Greek as well, because it literally, in the Greek language, um, the root word there means to lie or create or tell a falsehood. And it's important when we study the languages of the Greek text and the Hebrew text because what it does is it enriches our Bible study. So I'm going to throw in a, 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 a brief commercial this morning and encourage you to go deeper in your study of God's Word beyond your English translations, Okay? Now, that takes some responsibility on your part, and it takes some resources that you need, all right? So, if you're a technological type of person, then you can find many different apps. The one that we particularly use at our church, Faith Life, Faith Life is the parent company of a a Bible software called Logos or Logos Bible Software. I use that as I prepare my sermons, as I study. Uh, it's on my app. Uh, it's on my tablet, I mean. It's an app I can take wherever I want to go. And as I'm reading through an English translation, say the English stand, standard version, I can hold down on one word and it will give me the Greek or the Hebrew uh, trans, uh, word for that word that's being translated into English. The reason why that's important is it because it helps you understand the, what is being communicated. For example, a false teacher is a didaskos, a teacher who lies. A pseudo-didaskos, a teacher who speaks falsehood. That's important for us to understand in our study today. Because false teachers are not people who speak error accidentally They are intentional speakers of lies. And so, let me encourage you to enrich your study and not just read, oh, false teacher, but but see in that that text that that's a, a compound word that would help you understand the text a little better. There's not just a electronic or digital technology that way. Um, There's also a Bible called the Keyword Study Bible. 
And the Keyword Study Bible is a written Bible that has reference points that as you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, it will reference the Greek and the Hebrew, and it will take you on a journey of studying uh, where that word is used. Now, let me warn you. When you begin to study languages, what you need to understand is, is that there are many different translate or many different um, meanings to sometimes one word. And oftentimes what you have to do is not just land on one word because that sounds right. You need to, to fit that word and, and look at the context and you need to look at what's being said all around that and to what of, which one of those meanings to that one word makes the most sense. Okay? Because oftentimes if we don't take those practices of what is called hermeneutics, proper biblical interpretation, we can go off the deep end with poor doctrine and we can become false teachers. So we need to be careful. Okay? So pseudo didascos, false teachers, is our subject today. And it's important for us in the church to be aware that false teachers exist in our world. False teachers don't just exist in the early church. False teachers exist in 2022. They are out there right now teaching false doctrine, false gospels, leading to false conversions, and and it is leading to not only their destruction, but, but people that you love and the destruction of their spiritual lives. And so the Bible tells us in numerous books, Jesus talked about false uh, uh, teachers. Paul talked about false teachers. Peter talked about false teachers. Jude talked about false teachers. It is replete and repetitive throughout the New Testament. And we must be reminded that it's in the Old Testament. That there are examples of false teachers that come about and lead the people of God and the kings of Israel astray by speaking false words. Matter of fact, that's how Peter begins today. But, he says in verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people. False prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. And so as we begin today, I want us to look at the idea of the dangers of false teachers in our world today, how they have been a consistent practice of satanic scheming and divisiveness so that the people of God may fall prey to false doctrine that would lead to their own spiritual destruction. It's a warning that we need to be aware of. Now we ask why. Why, why do we need to be concerned? I go to a good church. Well, because we're all susceptible to it. As elders of Redemption Community Church, we control what comes from this pulpit. We cannot control what you look up on YouTube. We cannot control what podcast you fall in love with that leads you astray from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have to be aware that you are susceptible to false teaching And false doctrine if you are not careful to, one, know what the Bible teaches. And two, be understand that you might be led astray. And you need to understand these things and have clarity on them. Therefore, throughout the Bible, you are warned of the dangers. Let me uh, ask you if you would to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. We're going to start there because that's where Peter starts. It's right after Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's start in chapter 13. Because the people of Israel were susceptible to this as well. And so, by God's wisdom and grace, he warns the people even then. Look in verses 1 through 5. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and is he, if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams." 
For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and, be, and, and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, it's important there to see, first of all, that they are being warned that these false prophets would come upon them And they would actually generate some sign or some dream that would be a false authentication of their ability to be a prophet of God. And so in other words, the senses were stimulated by the people and they would easily fall prey because the, the, the false prophet would do something that would amaze them and, 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 and give them some uh, spectacular connection to this prophet. Therefore, they would listen to this person and, the, and therefore be led astray. But what was the litmus test in this scenario? That they were being led astray to worship false gods. So literally the litmus test was, is this false prophet leading you toward the word of God in my worship or away from the word of God in my worship? And the answer was away from the worship of the Lord. So Deuteronomy chapter 13. Flip a couple pages to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In this chapter, the promise to the people of Israel is that a new prophet like Moses would arise up. It's a famous passage because we see the fulfillment of this ultimately and completely in Christ. But in the the prophecy that a new prophet would arise up like Moses, there's a warning. And that warning starts in verse 20 of chapter 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how will we know the word that the Lord has spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So here is a second warning. Again, the warning is not necessarily that a, uh, a prophet is doing signs or wonders, but he is, he is claiming to speak for the Lord. And upon claiming to speak for the Lord, his prophecy does not come true. Therefore, you would know that that was not a prophet speaking on behalf of God. Two different types of warnings. Is he truly speaking the words of the Lord? How do we know? Do they come true? Are they real? Secondly, is he uh, leading a person to worship Yahweh God or is he leading them to worship other gods or false gods? And the, the commonality between these two warnings is simply this, the eradication of false prophets. That's how serious... And how dishonored the Lord is and people who would blaspheme his name and his word, they should literally be destroyed. Church, we have a great warning to consider in our own lives. Not that we go out and and seek out false prophets in our world today and, and start annihilating them. But at least see the principle that's there that God hates such atrocities in his, among his people and in his church and that we should be aware and be warned of their existence and their need to be eradicated from the people of God corporately and individually. That people in our lives should be warned if they have fallen prey to such false teaching. Because their lives are at stake. 
All right, head back towards 2 Peter. Stop at Galatians, the passage I spoke on last week. I purposely did not finish these verses, holding them off until this week. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Again, Paul tells the Galatian church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed means condemned to destruction. The difference has not changed. Or there is no difference between the Old and the New Testament. There is a judgment awaiting a strict and swift destroying judgment that are awaiting false prophets throughout history. So much so that Paul calls it anathema. The condemnation of God. The swift anger and justice and wrath of God that will fall upon those who speak ill of the Lord. And so this is why Peter writes 2 Peter The whole letter written by the Apostle Peter is purposed primarily to warn believers of false teachers. The entire letter. The entire letter is designated so that the persecuted church that he's already addressed in his first letter to be encouraged, to be challenged in their faith, to be sanctified and growing in the second letter would be reminded of the susceptibility and the dangers of false teaching among them. And so we're going to look at some observations about false teachers. Starting in verse 1, Peter tells them that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Number one, we should notice... That false teachers have deceptive intrusion. These false teachers rise up among us. Now this can mean two different things. And I think it does. It includes both the difficulty and the dangers of people who secretly enter into congregations and communities of faith wanting to exploit And teach something contrary to the word of God that's being preached. False prophets are rising up among us. It's not that they are outside in the world that that we are susceptible to. We acknowledge that. Peter's motive and purpose in writing is saying that they can be found within your ranks. Within your body, within your faith. They are intruding in to the church. Yeah, you'll find them in the world. And and media and, and, and technology has allowed more opportunity for us to fall prey to teachers and preachers who are trying to exploit us and make merchandise of us, as Brother Terry read, for their own purposes and gains. They're in the world. But oftentimes... The danger of Christians is to let our guards down when we are around one another, thinking that we are safe. Now church, I'm not trying to create some fear in you that, that you should not trust Redemption Community Church and our leaders. We vet our leaders. We go through processes of... of uh, evaluation and study and, and we constantly keep each other accountable to these things. So you should trust us. But we should never be passive sheep that live in the world not uh, being on alert of the possibilities of falling 
under the doctrines of false teachers. Why? Because the Bible tells us that they arose up among us. They are in our ranks. Look at what Paul tells the Corinthian church. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Disguising there literally means putting on a different form or appearance. Why? To intentionally deceive you and I into believing them. Well, what form are they putting on? Well, what we will see is that they are putting on the form of a faithful worker of Christ. So when you want to see and understand a, a, a false teacher, and you may know these people, maybe you've interacted with them. These are people that at one point you have trusted and you have depended upon to deliver the word of God to you. But the problem is, is that you saw a, 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 a slow grade of dissension from trusting the word of God into entertaining and from entertaining into politicizing and promoting themselves so that the word of God is never truly delivered. It becomes more a political speech or a speech of, of, of social issues and not what does the Bible teach us. And how does it want us to live? And so Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, taking the form of believers. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, but in a much more picturesque way, right? Beware of false teachers who are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Boy, this paints a scary picture for us, right? Wolves are hunters. Wolves enter into a sheepfold dressed like a sheep to intentionally deceive. And in that deception, for the purpose of hunting and killing us in our lives spiritually. This should be a, a stern warning for us. And this should not surprise us because as Paul continues to tell the church in Corinth in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 11, that these men who are disguising, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So they are simply doing and deceiving as Satan, their master, does. As the father of lies, as the great deceiver, he seeks to disrupt the work of God and his kingdom by leading people to false conversions, distortions of God's word, and delivering those attacks by false teachers in the church. And so this warning should lead us to action, church. This warning should lead us to understand this intrusion is wicked. That the church must man the gates and leave up their defenses. We must be alert to who is teaching us. Who am I listening to? What are their credentials? What have they, how are they being faithful to the word of God? Am I just being led down this path to, to hear and to listen and to trust without understanding what is truly being taught to me? Church, you must be aware. You must be alert to what God's Word teaches so that you can discern if what you are being taught by other men flows with what Christ intended. And the best way for us to do that is to know that a proper biblical interpretation of Scripture is, is to follow the path in which the original authors intended for that audience. Listen, the Word of God is timeless. What applies to Jews and early Christians throughout the Bible is still applicable to us today, even in a different culture. 
It doesn't have a, a different meaning even though it's in a different culture. It can still apply to us today. And we oftentimes see the twisting of Scripture because of such a, a different cultural uh, uh, a deviation that we think, oh, well, the, the meaning has to have some completely different meaning and it doesn't. It would have a different meaning if the Word was not literally fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit that never changes. If God Himself does not change, then His Word does not change. It's eternal. It's transcendent. And so we must trust what the Word teaches. And so church, we must be aware. We must be alert. We must be aware and alert to people who claim to have found new and different interpretations of what the Word says. Something that over, was overlooked by centuries of church theologians and scholars only to be found by this one person on a YouTube channel. Hey, I found something that no one else has ever found. We need to be alert of that. That's dangerous. How could these scholars and these theologians and, and these leaders, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, with proper interpretative uh, systems in place and processes in place, completely miss this one interpretation that Steve on the internet has figured out. That's dangerous. You need to, you need to forego that. Because, because of the deceptive intrusion that we face. Secondly, a deviating loyalty. Again, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The second observation is a difficult one. This is a problematic passage in the New Testament that scholars have debated and struggled with that I hope to help you understand today in the phrase that Peter writes, even denying their master who bought them. Now I would just go ahead and and be clear that I believe that this passage means that while false teachers exist in the church, while they live among us claiming to know Christ, they don't belong to Him. They are false converts. They are charlatans. They are wearing masks. They are hypocrites. They are dressed up as followers of Jesus Christ even though they have not submitted to him. This is a problematic passage and verse because it seems as if Peter is stating that these false teachers were bought by the redemptive work of Christ. Some have interpreted this passage to mean that as being bought by the master, that the blood of Christ hath purchased these false teachers salvifically, therefore, the work of Christ was attributed to them, which causes great conflict. We know that this, this language of the New Testament, to be bought, is a, it's a ransom language. It's a redemptive language. Paul tells the Corinthian church, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a, what? Price. Right? And what that means is, is that Christ paid the ransom for his people. That means that we owed a debt that we could not pay. Remember the song? He paid the debt he did not owe. We owed the debt he could not pay. Right? That there is a ransom, that an exchange that's made, a price was paid on our behalf to purchase us from the slavery of sin 
so that we might be liberated or freed. This is actually Old Testament language and, and, and metaphor, pictures, that, that, that a, a master would go out and he would purchase slaves and those slaves would become servants in their home and, and, and work for them and be loved by their masters. Therefore, that picture is applied to Christ who pays the ultimate price with his own blood by paying the ransom for us so that we might be liberated by his death and resurrection. Therefore, Paul tells us, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Christ liberates us by his death and resurrection. The question then, according to Peter is, are these false prophets then ransomed by the blood of Christ? Is that what he means? Well, let's continue to look through this chapter to see, does Peter think false teachers belong to Christ? Are they ransomed by his blood? Well, in verse 9, we read that he considers them unrighteous. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, he writes, from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He's talking about the false teachers. So these false teachers are unrighteous. They despise authority. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Verse 12 But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming what matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Peter sees these false teachers unrighteous, indulging in lust, despising authority, blaspheming matters to which they are ignorant. Verse 14, reviling in their deceptions, They have eyes full of adultery and insatiable sin, and they entice unsteady souls. You can continue on through this passage, and you can see that Peter does not think lightly of these false teachers. But one thing he communicates is that Peter sees these people as unregenerate, unconverted, lost and bound to the destruction and the wrath of God. So then why does Peter say that the master has bought them? Well, here's where we need to break this down a little bit. Because some interpreters will take this to mean and and, and generate from them the doctrine of universal atonement. Universal atonement. They'll say, see... Right here in 2 Peter, you have the Master Jesus Christ who bought and ransomed by His blood false teachers who are bound to destruction. How does that jive with us? How does that correlate? How does that come together? And their answer, their answer is a universal atonement. A universal atonement is the belief that when Jesus comes into the world sacrificing for sin, that his death was a sacrifice that effectually paid for all the sins of every person in the entire world throughout history. And this thought is that Jesus made it possible for everyone to be saved, but some deviate from the, from, from the universal atonement to say, but... That saving power, that actuating or activating power of Jesus' redemption is built upon the person's belief in Christ. In other words, Jesus comes to save the sins of all the people in all the world throughout history. But when you believe in Jesus, according to this doctrine, your faith activates the work of Jesus. It makes it effective. Therefore, your faith, your belief applies the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross to save you, to atone for your sin. Making forgiveness possible, making regeneration happen. One proponent of this view was 
the opponent to John Calvin, Jacob Arminius. And Arminius and his followers believed and taught such a universal atonement. They taught and formulated this statement. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross redemption and forgiveness of sins. Yet that not, no one actually enjoys the forgiveness of sins except the believer according to the word of the gospel of John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So did you catch that? Not everyone experiences the joys of the forgiveness that Jesus applies to the whole world because their faith activates that joy. It activates the reality and the application of that redemptive work. Here's the problems that I have with this view and why I reject it. Number one, if Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, you could claim then the whole world goes to heaven. And so you can lean to a more logical universalism. Jesus dying for the whole world and the power of his redemption and, and his resurrection, therefore applying the blood of Christ, the atoning work of Christ to everybody must mean then possibly that everyone goes to heaven. That's universal. That's a true universal atonement. Or... We could say, if Jesus Christ's blood is applied to everyone in the world, but only those who believe activate that redemptive work of his blood or his life, then we could say that the, the reservoir of Jesus' blood, of his life-giving work, partially goes unused. And wasted. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, if it was Christ's intention to save all men, how deplorable has it been disappointed, has he been disappointed? For we have his own testimony that there is a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. And into the pit of woe have been cast some of the very persons who, according to the theory of universal redemption, were bought by his blood. To imagine for a moment that he has the substitute for all the sons of men, that he was the substitute for all the sons of men, and that God, having first punished the substitute, afterwards punished the sinners themselves seems to conflict with all the ideas of divine justice. That Christ should offer an atonement and satisfaction for the sins of all men and that afterwards some of those very men should be punished for the sins for which Christ already atoned appears to me to be the most monstrous iniquity. So Spurgeon's rub with this theory of universal atonement it's not just that, the, that Christ's blood is wasted, unused by those who don't believe, but that literally it would be applied to people who still face a condemnation for eternity in hell for not believing. Therefore, I must encourage you by my interpretations and understanding of this passage, to reject such an interpretation of universal atonement. I hold to the unpopular and difficult to understand, yet in my opinion, clearly in Scripture, limited atonement. This is the opposing view to universal atonement, although the title is somewhat difficult to understand, it is not limited in what Christ could accomplish, but it is effectual. It is an effectual atonement. This view is the fact that Jesus Christ came to pay for the sins, not of the whole world, but for his people, the elect. Therefore, the term limited is isolated to his chosen people only. 
This doesn't mean that Jesus had a limited power or to save or that his might wasn't strong enough to grab a hold of people and rip them from the pending judgment of hell. But instead that his limited atonement was purposeful and succinct and precise and not wasted but perfect in every way. Built upon previous doctrines of the doctrine of election. That those who are chosen are called and those who are called will be redeemed as God had planned it before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want to draw these things from thin air. But look at a couple passages that I think teach these things. John chapter 10. Jesus told the disciples, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is using the analogy or the metaphor of of being the good shepherd. Of knowing his own. His own meaning his sheep. His sheep not meaning the whole world, but those who God had given him. This is what he says in John chapter 10 verse 25. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Right there, the false teachers are not a part of the sheep of Jesus. I'll continue, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father has blessed the Lord Jesus, His Son, with the gift of His sheep, His church, His people, Jesus tells us that those sheep hear His voice, they know Him. When He calls them to salvation, they know Him, they follow Him, they respond to Him as the Good Shepherd. He gives them eternal life, separate from the false teachers. And these sheep, these elect, that He laid down His life for, will never perish, they will never face condemnation, no one will take them out of his hand, because the Father will make sure in his greatness and his power that they will persevere to the end. The sheep, those who Jesus laid his life down for, And lastly, and we always miss it in this passage, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the whole world. That's not what it says. He gave himself up for her, the church. Who is the church? The sheep. The body of Christ. True believers who believe and trust. Called before the foundation of the world. Believing and trusting because of regeneration. Being sanctified day by day. Persevering to the end. And having applied upon themselves the ransomed blood of Christ. So that they might be saved. So therefore, my view is the limited atonement is a stronger argument than the unlimited atonement. And therefore, because of the light of all of Scripture and not one specific verse in this passage, we must come to understand it differently than false teachers as being ransomed by the blood of Christ. So how would I interpret this passage? Well, I think there's a couple clues. The strongest of the clues is again, as I started out in my sermon, understanding the Greek language. Because most often in the New Testament, the word for Lord is the Greek word kurios. Kurios, meaning Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's he's ruler. He's king. Well, here... Peter specifically, and I think intentionally, uses the word despotes, 
which is where we get the word despot from. And it is an earthly king or an earthly master. And so what I think, in, in the way that is best interpreted here, is that by Peter using a different Greek word, helps us translate this to see him using an, an analogy of earthly rulers who go and, and purchase slaves, therefore requiring from those slaves obedience and servitude. So Paul is saying, these false teachers, they claim to submit themselves to their, quote, master. But by using the word despotus, he's really using, in almost a, a, a sarcastic way, bringing forth the fact that these are disobedient servants to their master. He's not really their lord. He's not really their master. He's, they're not submitting to him as curios. They are disobedient servants, as they call themselves to be. That is the long version of simply saying, these false teachers are false converts of the faith. This is why I started our sermon series thinking about this. Because of the realities around us of people who are spiritually lost that call themselves believers. If we cannot acknowledge the reality that your neighbor to the left or to the right of you in this building could be lost even though they claim to know Christ, then we will fall prey to the realities that those people could one day be false teachers that lead us astray. It is a stepping stone of the reality of the spiritual danger that we all face if we go around unaware of the dangers before us. And so let me warn us, church. Let me warn us strictly and repeatedly and clearly. Be aware of the reality of these false teachers who rise up among us but do not belong to us. Now I'm going to stop here because I have much more to say. But it's a stern warning about false teaching to remind us about false conversion that challenges us to examine our own lives. To know that you are in the faith. I pray, I pray by God's grace that you have not been convicted today. That you have been sitting under some false teaching in your life outside of this church. I want you to, be, to discover such a thing. But, but I pray that it hasn't happened to you for the sake of the destroying nature and the corrupting nature of such a thing. But if, if you've come to see that, some teacher that's leading you away from the gospel, some teacher that's leading you away from the, the truth of God's word, then turn away from that. But also, consider your own life, your own salvation, and examine to see if you are in the faith. Because if we live day by day unaware of such a danger and our life ends, it could be too late. So know that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sin and that your sin is so great and you are so unworthy. Your righteousness is as filthy rags that there is nothing possible that you could accomplish or do in this lifetime. However many years on this earth to justify yourself according to the word of God, according to obedience to the law, according to religious practice or moral living or even social benevolence. No, instead, we should understand that we all as sheep have gone astray, each of us our own way, but that the Lord 
has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And by trusting in Jesus Christ and believing that he died upon the cross and rose from the grave, we can believe the true gospel and we can be saved. And upon being saved, we can have discernment and wisdom from the Holy Spirit to understand false teaching, to see a radical transformation in our own lives. And we rejoice and worship the Lord as He's intended to be worshipped. And so examine yourself, church. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the awesome responsibility as a pastor to open the Word of God and to dig deeply to try to understand it and communicate it to our people. And God, what I say and what I have spoken today, I leave in your hands as it falls upon the ears of those listening. God, to ring true. God, I pray that they would see the truth of your word and be changed by it. Father, I pray that you would help us to see false teachers in our lives in this world to stand firm. As Jude says, that we would be people who contend for the faith. And that we would not be so naive and and so unaware because we've never encountered such a, a threat that we would let our defenses down. God, give us discernment and wisdom as to who teaches us your word. Guide us according to your Holy Spirit. And may Christ in all that we do and say, and all that we learn and study, may Christ be exalted in those things. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide my 